Hi, welcome again, everyone who's listening online today. My name is Ed Travers. I'm the teaching pastor at our campus in Westerville. Uh, and it's just a, a great big welcome to have every one of us listening together online from all of our campuses. Um, I was thinking about uh, something as I was preparing for this new uh, series that we're in today. I was thinking about a person in my life who I've known since I was in high school, uh, a person who doesn't seem to have much filter. And I think everyone has a friend like that, right? Uh, some, some of these people call themselves, they're just truth tellers, right? But usually it's because they don't have a filter and they just say whatever's on their mind. So the person I was thinking about, uh, when I moved in high school, my sophomore year, uh, my family all moved to a house uh, in a particular neighborhood. Across the street was my friend Michelle, that's where she lived, and she ended up dating my brother. So she was at my house all the time. They dated for like three years on and off, and she was there so often, it was almost like she was an extra sister around the house. She was so fun because there was no topic that was taboo. She would just say it. You know, we'd be having a conflict and she'd say the thing that we all needed to hear. Uh, you know, if you were in class with her, sometimes she'd blurt out or, you know, she just had that personality type that no matter where we were at or what was going on, she would just say the thing that other people kind of were thinking but would never say. So it made her really fun, but sometimes it made it really awkward at other times. Well, after we graduated, she and my brother stopped dating and we all just went our different directions. She moved out to California and moved back and got married, had kids, you know, and we just all kind of lost touch. Well, years later, we ran into each other at a high school reunion. Uh, there's a, a picture that I have of her and my friend Mary. Mary was one of our class officers and Mary always organized all of our, you know, reunions for our high school. Well, anyway, there's this picture of her and, and Michelle and, uh, what happened is that Mary got sick, and over the course of several years, uh, she got sicker and sicker, and she asked me to do her funeral. So we're at the funeral, and I'm, I'm kind of doing what I have to do. I'm you know, helping people connect and pray and kind of go through the grieving process. And after a funeral, when that's done, it's like there's this really somber moment where no one really knows what to say. You're kind of, you know, people are crying or people are hugging, people are saying goodbye, uh, people are kind of giving condolences. And so there's this really kind of somber mood. Michelle walks up to me, she looks me right in the eye and she goes, Eddie, I want you to do my funeral. And I'm like, I wouldn't have expected anything different from her to just say what she's thinking in that moment, even in the midst of, you know, all of the somberness. We all have a friend like that, or maybe you're that person, that they just say what they're thinking. They, they just blurt it out, and they, sometimes it gets awkward. And we all might be thinking the same thing, but we might not say it. We're in this new series we're calling Asking for a Friend. The idea behind this series is this, that um, you know, we're gonna be asking questions that are a little bit uncomfortable, but they're, they're questions that we all really wanna know the answers to. We're gonna be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter six and seven, which highlights some really difficult things. And when you think about asking for a friend, the idea behind that is these are things that we all wanna know, but when we say asking for a friend, what we're saying is, hey, we're, we're too awkward to really just own that ourselves, but deep down, we really wanna know the answer. And here's what we're saying, that in the midst of these two chapters we're gonna look at over this, this five-week series, and, and we're gonna look at some deep questions like, you know, things like, why, why do Christians struggle to get along? Uh, what about marriage and divorce? And what about sexuality? And what about singleness? Things that, that come up in our culture, uh, things that come up in our own lives that we would like to know the answers to, but sometimes it's uncomfortable to ask. And in this series, we're gonna look at those, and here's what we're saying. 
that Jesus actually gives the best answers to life's toughest questions. They're not always the easiest answers, but they are the best answers to life's toughest questions. What we're going to look at today uh, at the start of this series is why is it that Christians struggle to get along? You would think that as our leader, Jesus, the the one who's the most loving, most caring, uh, most compassionate, uh, and we take on his personality, we allow him to live in us and through us, you would think that Christians would get along better than any people on the planet, and yet sometimes, and almost, almost publicly, sometimes Christians just don't get along. They fight. Churches split over sometimes the silliest things. People leave churches because they, they couldn't get along with someone or they didn't like the pastor. Or they didn't, you know, there's, there are things that happen. Why does this happen? Why is it that Christians seem to not get along so much? Why do they fight asking for a friend? Well, if you have a Bible, open it up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And that's my goal is to kind of walk through uh, this passage and help us to understand it. Before we do that, let's just take a second to pray. Because sometimes it's easy to listen to the word of God and think, oh, this is good for someone else without ever actually applying it to ourselves. So let's take a second and pray and invite God into this moment uh, as, we, as we dig through Scripture. Father, I pray that you would use this Scripture to really speak to us. Help us to see something that you want us to see. Help it to shape us, to challenge us, uh, to convict us. Lord, but draw us closer to you in the midst of this. Uh, we, we give you permission, Lord, just to guide our hearts today in this moment. It's in your name we pray, amen. Well, The question is a question I think it bears an answer, and Paul really does address it. Uh, In the book of Corinthians, here's what you're going to find. Paul was was a man who was a a persecutor of the church until the moment where Jesus shows up and blinds him and knocks him off his horse and reveals the risen Christ to Paul personally. Now, Paul went from being an antagonist to being, you know, all in with Jesus. He, of course, believes now. And on top of that, God sent him on a mission so that people would know the name of Jesus, that the gospel would be spread. And that's exactly what Paul did. He went from place to place to place planting churches. And you can read about that in the book of Acts, and particularly in Acts 18. He goes to Corinth, which was a Greek city. He goes there. He starts to share with the Jewish congregation people first uh, to let them know about Jesus. Most of them kind of reject Paul's teaching, and a lot of the other people there, the Greek people, start to become believers, and a church gets formed. Paul had an incredible season of ministry there for over a year and a half, teaching daily, and many people became believers, and he helped that church to grow, and he appointed elders and leaders and pastors, and then he would do, as was his custom, he'd move on to the next town and do the same thing. But what would happen is over time, he would either go back and visit these places, but he would write letters. So most of the letters you see in the New Testament are letters that Paul wrote to these churches that he founded. And these letters were written mostly to kind of give them truth or to shape them or to encourage them. Sometimes the letters were there to correct them. And in the book of Corinthians, here's what you find. The first letter is really a lot of correction. That church was a young church. Younger than life point. And as a result, there were a lot of things because there was a lot of youth there and uh, they just a lot of immaturity. Some of their faith that it was just kind of going off the rails. There were cliques. People were saying, no, I follow Apollos. I follow Peter. I follow Paul. Like they were finding spiritual cliques. They, uh, they were struggling with a lot of sexual immorality, things happening that were kind of embarrassing. They were using their church services to uh, kind of like one-up each other. Who was going to be have the, the highest gift and the best gift and, and kind of make each other envious of each other? 
And on top of it, there were some infighting in the church that was causing struggles. And in the letter, Paul addresses all of those things. And then we come to chapter six, and he starts out this way. And here's what I wanna say, that if you wanna understand why it is that Christians fight, you need to understand this, is that the issue has been around for a while. Chapter six, verse one says, now when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you know or not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Can you almost feel the tone in the writing? He starts out by saying, how dare you, basically? What are you doing? And what he's claiming is that, look, you guys are going to court, civil court, against each other. People from in the church having a civil case. This isn't a murder case or a theft case. This is like a civil case. So maybe this is a case where, you know, you lend someone your lawnmower and the person doesn't give it back or they bring it back and it's broken. So you take them to court because the lawnmower is broken. You want them to pay for it. That kind of a case. And these are going, you know, these believers are going to civil court. Now in Greek culture, court was one of those things that was kind of like the theater of the day. So if you do any reading about that ancient culture, uh, think about like the town square. So you're walking through the town square and you go to the market, you pick up some food and, and maybe you're, you're meeting your friends. Well, in the town square, you would have you know, a judge and you would have the two people who are going to court against each other and they would hire an advocate on their behalf to kind of present their case, almost like a theater worker who's, who's talking you know, their case. And then there would be the jury and the jury was made up of citizens. Sometimes your juries would be 40 people, 50 people, 120 people. And it was part of Greek culture that if you were over the age of 60, you actively participated in jurors or being a juror for these juries. And it was kind of like Judge Judy of the day. People would go to the town square, they'd pick up some lunch, they'd stop by and listen to the trial, then they'd head home for the day. That's what was happening. So this was a very, uh, a court of public opinion, if you will, and these guys are bringing their cases to the court. And Paul's saying, what's the matter with you? And then he starts saying, don't you know that you're gonna judge the world? Don't you know you're gonna judge angels? Don't you know that you know this is all happening in front of unbelievers, what are you doing? So I was thinking about these this situation, and I picked up three observations. The first one is this, is that the saints will be given authority to judge the world and judge angels. Did you catch that? Now, the people who were hearing this, maybe Paul had already talked about this with them. Paul was given direct uh, revelation from Jesus, so he had information that he would teach that was coming straight from the Lord. But this could go all the way back to Daniel chapter seven, where God spoke you know, through an angel to Daniel, and he talked about how the saints are gonna, in the millennial kingdom, they're gonna judge the world. They're gonna have dominion over the world. And that would be assumed even angels, that saints. Now saints aren't just you know, famous people who did great things. Saints, the word actually means anyone who's a believer in Christ is a saint. So what Paul is saying and what God spoke through Daniel is that believers will actually be given roles of leadership to judge the world and even to judge angels. 
If you fast forward to Revelation 3, it talks about uh, that, that kingdom and how there's going to be a dominion and, and God's going to give us jobs and roles of importance that, that we're supposed to follow him. And what Paul is saying is that, look, if you can judge the world and you're going to judge angels, how come you can't judge each other with trivial matters? Isn't there someone in the church you can go to? Shouldn't you find someone, go to an elder, go to your life group leader, go to the pastor, find some people and deal with this? Why would you drag this into the court of public opinion? And that's the, that's the second observation. These believers had no concern for how the name of Christ might appear to people who are outside the church. They're willing to go to the court of public opinion and fight it out without any concern at all how that might look to people outside the church. That's not their concern. And here's the last observation. The early church, just as messed up as we are today, this issue's been going on for a while. Now, now you might be listening to this and, and reading this and thinking, well, I'm not going to take anybody to court. You know, you, you, you probably have, most people have never been to court in their life over some kind of a trivial matter like this. Uh, you know, uh, imagine today you might uh, lend your car to a neighbor and your neighbor wrecks the car, comes back to you and says, well, it's your problem. It's your car, your insurance, your problem. And you're like, no, you were driving it. It's your insurance, your problem. And then there's a squabble over that. That might be uh, something that we might do. Uh, you hire a person to build a deck and someone that you know from the church and, and you guys are friends, you hire him, you pay him up front. He doesn't do the deck the way you want. You come to him and say, hey, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. I want my money back. And he says, no, I did the work. You owe me the money. And there's a squabble over something like that. Those are things we might go to court over, but that's pretty rare, isn't it? Do you know what I find that we do in the church all the time, though? Is that we do take our grievances to the court of public opinion. We do it with word of mouth, we do it with social media, we complain, we, we argue, we, we, we air our grievances amongst people that have no business even dealing with that. In fact, if you read through the book of Matthew, Jesus tells us, that, look, if you have a problem with someone, just go to them, try to work it out. And if you can't work that out, then bring someone with you and try to work it out. That's how you deal with a problem. But what I've found is in the church, we often use the court of public opinion to air our grievances. In fact, I, uh, I've kind of, I'm old enough now and been in the church long enough now to see different waves of church history, right? The uh, late 80s and early 90s, the whole seeker-sensitive movement and, and the mega church boom kind of took place and uh, then, you know, kind of gave way to a new phase where it's, we're going to go more ancient, use more uh, liturgy and secular, like, uh, I'm sorry, this, this kind of like this ancient feel of church and that kind of spawned on a completely different movement that was happening in the 2000s. There's all kinds of hybrids and things like that. But one thing that I have noticed over time uh, is that there's also been a wave of critical spirit happening against the church. And it really happened uh, and blossomed with YouTube and blogs. And, you know, everyone has a voice now. And I've noticed that there's these keyboard warriors that really want to kind of, they want to get their, uh, you know, their subscribers and kind of grow their business. And what they do is they pick a topic and they target the Christian market, if you will. And they say, you know, you got to be against this church or against this speaker or against this theology. And they literally just kind of create these, uh, these YouTube channels and blogs that, that basically attack the church. Now, in, our, in times past, we would have said, oh, that's my grandpa's you know, church that split over the carpet. Well, now they're splitting over like this speaker and this speaker, and, you know, and it just becomes kind of like this critical spirit. And I've seen many people caught up in that. In fact, I have friends that, have, that will send me videos. Have you seen this guy? Have you seen this guy? Have you seen this? And they're always attacking the church. 
And I remember at times feeling, you know, like you listen to that stuff and you're like, wow, this is really interesting. I, I should, you know, I should fall into this guy's camp or this guy's camp or this guy's camp. And there's all these people that, and, and becomes this, this almost pot of stew that people just stir up. In fact, I have another friend that, that every time they put out a post on social media, it's always, you, you should never listen to this speaker, never listen to this author, never go to this kind of church. And it's always negative. And the unsaid said is you need to do it like me. Believe like I do. Pick a side. Why is that so prevalent? Honestly, I think Christians get bored with just living the Christian life. And so instead of just listening to the word of God and allowing the spirit of God to lead me to love him and to love others, to draw life from God through the spirit, through his word, through the body of believers, to draw life from him and then to point others to him, to live on mission with Jesus. It's sometimes people would rather be entertained not unlike people walking by a jury in, in Corinth. That's not what God wants for us. I've had people say, well, well, Ed, we need to go back to the early church. We need to be just like it was in the New Testament. Well, which New Testament church, Corinth? Here's the problem. We all have sin and it's been part of our uh, nature from day one, which means you're gonna see problems in all churches, in all generations. And God is really good at dealing with his church. In fact, read Revelations 2 and 3 where Jesus addresses the seven churches in Asia Minor. He, he addresses them. He corrects them. And he does the same thing with his church today. I felt early in my 30s, I remember feeling kind of that same angst, like, well, this church is doing it wrong. This church. And I felt like God just convicted me. He gave me the picture of, of a, you know, a bride coming down the aisle to a groom and someone standing up and just slinging mud on the bride. And the groom is really mad. And you see, the church is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. Where it's not meant, we don't sling mud on the bride of Christ. That's his bride. He will make his bride pure. That's not a responsibility. And the question is, you know, why does this happen? Well, it's been happening from the beginning. Here's the second thing. And this is the truth we need to understand. It is possible to win and still lose. Remember, Paul is addressing these, this first century church, and he's telling them, look, you guys need to get it together. In verse 6, he says, but brother goes against, you know, to law against brother. And before unbelievers, verse 7, verse part of verse 7 says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Okay, Paul, you don't understand. I'm taking this guy to court because he's wrong, and he has wronged me. And so I'm taking him to court and I'm gonna win my case. And Paul's saying, so what? The fact that you're even at court means you've already lost. Lost what, Paul? What do you mean, what have I lost? Well, look, I want you guys to think about this verse. This is John chapter 13. This is at the end of Jesus' ministry. He's talking to his disciples and telling them how important it is that they love one another that that is, fulfills his law, that we love one another. Verse 35, it says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So here's, here's what the Lord is saying. The plan for the Lord to reconcile the world to himself. And that's what the gospel means, that the gospel means that anyone who is far from God can come to Christ. That even though people kind of put their hand in God's face their whole life and say, no, I'm doing it my way. I don't want you to be my God. I want to be in charge of my life. And then they go through life and realize it doesn't work. They feel that 
shame and guilt in their soul. They feel that disconnection from God and they realize that they've, something is broken between us and God. And then God sends his son to die on a cross to be risen from the grave. And as he's risen from the grave, because he's alive, he draws all men to himself, all women to himself, telling, he pursues them with this message. You can be set free from sin. You can be made right with the father. Come, come to me, all who are weary of living life that way. And those who believe that message are part of the kingdom of God. They've been made right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross. Anyone who knows that message deep down, we know how important that message is to get out because we felt his grace, we felt his mercy. The plan of God is that he uses believers to spread that message. That's how the kingdom of God advances. So what is he saying? The message is getting out and how do they know that we're from him? By the love we have from one another. The way we love each other should be so much higher than any other place in the world. And what Paul is saying is, when you're going to court of public opinion against your brother in Christ, against your sister in Christ, when you're trying to win people to your side, to get them to believe your side and not theirs, when you do that, when you're trying to cause division and, and you get people to believe your side and not that, when you do that, that's the message you're sending. Not a message of the gospel, not a message of how we love each other beyond what anyone else in the world does. Does that mean that these conflicts don't matter? Does that mean that, you know, what about times when I'm right? Like, we all wanna be right, we, we get that, we, we feel that, that's true. We all want justice. That's something that's in us. And yet he's saying, no, I want you to go to that person, talk to them, bring another to, isn't there someone in the church you can talk to? Can't you bring others in the spirit of peace, come to them and work it out? That's what he's saying. Love each other in a way that Christ would be represented in that conflict. That's what he's saying. So you could go to court, win in court and still lose in the kingdom of God because that's what we're presenting to the world. Can I just say something about that real quick? I've, I've, uh, I've been married for 25 years. Uh, I've done a lot of premarital counseling and marriage counseling, uh, just, just with couples in the church. And here's what I found across the board when it comes to relationships. The reason we have conflict is because we all sin and sometimes that sin clashes against each other and it causes conflict. More so, we all have a sense of justice and of right and wrong, and sometimes those are in conflict and that can cause a problem, right? But when people are struggling in relationship, it's almost inevitably one problem, almost across the board, is that both people are trying to be right. Both people see it only from their side and the other person needs to agree with them. And when they don't agree with them, it causes a conflict, specifically when two people have strong opinions that are opposed. Our desire to be right supersedes relationship. That's the issue. We want justice. We want to be made right. That's what we want. And that causes conflict. And that is what causes most of these things to happen that cause the problems and the struggles, even within the church. So here's the thing. Paul suggests a solution. Paul suggests something that actually would solve the problem and would keep us from having conflict. The problem is, as the Holy Spirit led Paul to share it, 
as the Holy Spirit is trying to communicate to us through the word of God, the problem with this answer that Jesus is giving to us through Paul is that nobody wants to hear this solution. You ready? Here's the solution. The end of verse seven, remember, starts out like this. To have lawsuits at all with one another means you've already a defeat for you. You've already lost. Here's a suggestion. Why not rather suffer wrong? <laughs> Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Now, it's one thing if, if we're the culprit. Like, if, if we're the culprit, then the answer is stop doing that. Like, if we're trying to take advantage of someone, if we're sinning against someone in the church or anyone else, like, that's an easy answer. Everyone knows, don't do that. That was wrong. Repent of that. Ask for forgiveness. That's how you handle conflict if you were in the wrong. But what if you really believe you're in the right? What if you want justice? His suggestion is, why not just suffer the wrong? Why not just be defrauded? Thanks, Paul. So what you're saying is, Paul, you would rather have us be taken advantage of? Yes, because the name of Christ and the importance of the gospel being spread to those supersedes your need to be right and to be made right in justice. In the end, God will have justice. God will be in charge of the whole world. God is in charge of his church. Are there real problems in the church? Yes, because people exist in the church. Creating a YouTube channel to slander the church is not the answer. Jesus himself will raise up people in that church to convict the church. God will do his thing. He will have his way. And the same is true of our lives. So why do we need to be right? He's saying, look, I'd rather you just suffer the wrong than to make Jesus' name drug into the court of public opinion where people start to think that's what Christians are all about. What they need to see is our love that we have for one another. This is just not easy. He's saying that our love for for each other, our love for Christ should play itself out in loving each other and that should supersede our need to be right, our need to have justice. Thanks, Paul, thanks for the suggestion, thanks, Lord. I, I'm not sure that's the easiest answer and yet something in me tells me it actually is the, the best answer. L let me give you an example of how I've seen this play out recently in someone's life uh, in a way that, uh, that kind of floored me and left me a little bit stunned. Um, I have a friend in our church who, he's the teaching pastor at our campus in Delaware. His name is Cale Boer. Cale and his wife, Morgan, they have three kids. They're all little, beautiful family. Uh, Cale and I have become friends because, you know, we both are teaching pastors and we, are, we have to spend a lot of time together as teaching pastors to help shape each other and sharpen each other and challenge each other and work together. Uh, and so we've developed a friendship. And, and over time, uh, I've just grown to really admire him as a, as a gifted teaching pastor and a gifted leader and pastor and friend. Like, I, I've appreciated him. But something happened recently over the summer that, that was very difficult. Uh, word got out that his daughter had been in a terrible uh, a, a dog attack at a park. Uh, he and Morgan were on their way to a hospital. Uh, they were driving down to, to visit a loved one who was kind of at end of life. And, and on their way down there, uh, the babysitter had the three kids. They were at a local park. And uh, someone was walking uh, their, their dogs, and one of the dogs attacked their youngest daughter. And they got word that it was bad, like real bad. Uh, the kid was, uh, their daughter was, was bitten to the point where it had to go to Children's Hospital, and it was dangerous. 
Uh, her spleen had been punctured. Her diaphragm had been punctured among the other surface wounds uh, that had to be fixed and stitched up and whatnot. And so I knew it had happened. Uh, I had been, you know, Tammy, my wife and I were praying for the Boer family and praying for this little girl and, and just for all that's happening there. Uh, and then fast forward, I got a chance to meet with Kale because we were talking through this series, actually. But before we got into the series, I asked him, I said, how are you doing with that? And Kale just starts to share. He's processing what he's feeling. And he says, you know, we, we left, we were going down there, and the worst part was the call, like the, just the utter panic of not knowing what happened to her and, and, you know, then turning around and rushing to get, you know, to the hospital and wondering, is she okay, though? Is she going to be okay? And, and then just, you know, just the sheer horror of how can my little girl be damaged by a dog, no less? And they get to the hospital, and, and, and he's telling me that she, she was bit up and, and just her body was wrecked, and there's so many people there and nurses and, and doctors. And, and then he shows me a picture of his daughter's back, and that's when I stopped thinking. Like my, my brain just kind of froze, and all I could think about were my two little girls. Like my girls are 15 and 17, but they're always going to be my little girls. Like I can think back to when they were, you know, Kale Morgan's daughter's size and how little they were. And I just started thinking and, and you just, you're overcome with all these emotions. And as Kale's trying to process, you know, you could just see him reliving the horror of it all. And as he's reliving it, I, I'm just stunned. He says, you know, but, but we knew God was there, that God showed up, that even, you know, in that moment, that there was a, a bystander who came by uh, to help. And so that you have the dog owner and the, the babysitter and this other guy trying to save my daughter and try to get the dog off of them and then to kind of take care of her. And they called 911 and the ambulance driver, the, the paramedic who gets there, it turns out that this guy had been recently listening to Kale online. And he, that very morning, had listened to one of Kale's sermons, and, and this was causing a rejuvenation in his soul to, to want to grow close to the Lord. And when he heard the message, you know, he, he realized who it was, and he has a daughter about the same age, he and the other paramedic, and they prayed because they wanted to treat, treat this little girl like they were treating their own daughter. And they get down to Children's Hospital, and there are believers there, people who, who Kale Morgan knew. I mean, and every, it just felt like, and Kale has explained this, that it just felt like God was there at every step of the way that he was there. As I'm listening to him talk, I said, Kale, you know, what, what are you going to do? Like, as I'm thinking, honestly, at this moment, he's sharing the horror of the story. And here's what I was thinking. I'm a peaceful guy. I am super laid back. I feel like I have pretty good patience. I love peace and kindness, but I could be pushed. I don't know what happens that pushes me across the line that I might do something a little bit crazy because I don't know what I'm capable of, but if there's ever gonna be a point in my life where it might push me, this would be that kind of moment where I might lose my mind, right? And so that's what I'm thinking. How is Kale not losing his mind? And here's what Kale said, and when he said it, I was floored. He said, you know, the person who, whose dogs were there, the dog who attacked my daughter, that lady is a single mom, and she's going through a divorce. And I can't help but think that maybe God, God might do something here. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, um, I just started praying for her. And uh, we started thinking, you know, what if, what if this is an opportunity for this woman to hear the gospel? What if this is an opportunity in her life? for God to enter into her life, to start intersecting her life? What if, what if she got baptized at LifePoint? 
What if she became part of our serving teams and, and my kid, you know, is walking hand in hand with her one day? Like, what if that's what God was doing? And I'm sitting there like, you know, I was all I could do to keep from crying when he was talking, but I didn't want to let him see that I was going to lose it. I'm just trying to keep it cool and I'm listening to him talk. Fast forward, he and Morgan are sitting with this, this woman. And the woman, of course, is just horrified, just trying to explain and, and be, how do you say you're sorry for what your dog did? And these, these two large dogs have never shown any sign of this ever. And, and she has two little boys who sleep on top of these dogs and they, there's never been a moment. And how do you say you're sorry? As this woman's trying to say she's sorry, Morgan stops her and says, I think God might be in this. I think God might be trying to intersect your life. I mean, can you imagine? Can you just imagine that moment? You would have to believe in that moment, if that was your family, you would have to believe that the cross is the most important thing that's ever happened in the world. That's what you would have to believe. You would have to believe that Jesus dying on the cross to rescue people who are far from God, to save them from sin, is the most important thing that's ever happened. You would have to believe that God sent his own son down to take on the penalty that he took on our punishment himself so that we could be made right. You would have to believe that's so important that that would supersede even a moment where justice demands that someone pay. That's the only way that you could do that. Now, I know Kale well. I understand that that's what he teaches and that's what he preaches. But I also know now it's what he believes in his soul. We will live in accordance with what we believe about the cross. If we believe that's the most important thing that's ever happened, then we will live our lives and say, Jesus, will you change me? Help me to allow the cross to become the most important thing in my life, even if I've been wronged, even if I've been defrauded, even if someone is coming against me. How will I live in light of that? That's what Paul is suggesting. That's what Paul wants us to believe. This is what Jesus wants us to believe. Listen, if you're listening in and you're thinking, but I'm in the middle of something that's difficult, I get it. Here's what you do. You pray for that person. Pray that God will give you forgiveness in your soul. Try to bring someone else to them. Try to reason. Try to work it out. Work hard. Go to a pastor. Go to a leader. Find a friend, a trusted friend that you can bring into the situation, but allow the love of Christ to be permeate the conflict. Conflicts happen. It's completely normal, and it's been happening since the beginning of time. But let's let the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus and allow that to enter into the conflict. Let's allow our view of Christ to be more important than our need to be right. If you are in the middle of a conflict, that's, that's what we do. We go to Christ. If, if you're listening in today and maybe you've been hurt or you've been wronged, then ask for the love of Christ to, to give you healing. Talk to a friend, talk to a leader. Walk through, it's difficult, it's messy. But I would say to you, maybe you're listening in and you're thinking, you know what? I don't know that I've ever heard love like that. I don't know that I've ever understood it. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He looked at your offense, right? And we live our lives sinfully basically saying, no God, doing it my way. And yet he said, okay, I'll pay for that. What did Jesus do wrong? Why did he do wrong that he deserved to die on a cross? Nothing. He took on our sin upon his shoulders. He was bruised for our transgressions. He was wounded so that we could become healed. You can become healed of your sin today 
with a little step of faith to ask Jesus to forgive your sins and call him into your life. Let's take a second to pray. Uh, Father, I pray that you would meet us all where we're at, that as we struggle in conflict with others, because that's just part of the nature of interacting with others, God, that you would meet us where we're at and help us to have your love, to have the gospel in our hearts, and that that would supersede even the moments of conflict on this earth. God, that you would bring your peace into these conflicts, that we would look differently than the world. God, help us who have been wronged. Help us in those situations to have that kind of peace. And if you're listening and you've never made a decision to follow Christ, tell God right now, God, I believe in you. I believe you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross and I believe he rose from the grave. Tell him that. And then tell Jesus. The Bible says, anyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Here's what that means. You say, Jesus, I'm calling on you right now. Will you please forgive me of my sin? I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've lived my life for me. I'm sorry I've lived my life my way. I'm asking you, Jesus, will you please forgive me of my sin? I'm sorry. And then say, Jesus, will you please lead my life? I want to try to do it your way. I want to put my faith in your hands. Will you please guide me and lead me? Just ask him that. You need to know it's that little step of faith that makes you right with God. Not because you've earned it, because you've placed your faith in the one who did, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for any of those who are making that first-time decision. You would meet them where they're at. You'd place your Holy Spirit in them, and they'd start to sense your Holy Spirit in their life. Lord, I pray you'd put people in their life to help them walk this out, to help them learn to what it means to follow you. And I ask it in your son's holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much for listening in. Before we move on, and I think um, I just want to say that if you are taking that first step or you have questions, feel free to reach out to me at edt at lifepointohio.com. I'd be happy to try to answer any questions you might have. Thanks so much for listening in today. God bless.